Great to be with you all. My name is Rob Sweet, and along with Lloyd Shadrach, he and I are the teaching pastors here at Fellowship. And if you're new with us, a couple things I'd want you to know. One is you'll hear from Lloyd, you'll hear from myself the majority of the time. We have two campuses, and when I'm here, Lloyd's at Franklin Campus and vice versa. The other thing I'd want you to know is the way that we teach is we take a book of the Bible and we just teach through it verse by verse. So the passage that Tony just read is in Colossians chapter 3, as he mentioned. We've been in Colossians since the fall, took a little break for the Christmas season, but we're back in it and we're walking it through passage by passage. So we've got four verses we're going to cover today. Uh, In this Colossians series, the main idea of the whole book is Jesus is the center of everything. He's above it all. He's the center of the universe from the, the greatest center of the cosmos to the tiniest little particle, he's at the middle, he's at the center. And the idea of that is, if Jesus is the center of all things, then the path to human flourishing means putting him at the center of all of our things, our identities, our relationships, our jobs, our career. So our mission here at Fellowship, help people find a wholehearted life in Jesus, is we'd say there's really no other life that's actually true life, life that's worth living than life with Jesus at the very center. And Paul, in this book, over and over, keeps talking about Jesus is the center of everything. Now, I hadn't shared this part yet because I'd been waiting to get to chapter three, but Colossians is one of my favorite books of the Bible for a reason. When I was in high school and I was just trying to figure out my faith and kind of make, make my parents' faith my own, you know, some of you raised in a Christian home, uh, like me, I know that's not everybody, but there's a point in your life you've got to figure out what do you believe, not what your family believes, what do you believe? And I don't know why, but somebody encouraged me to read through this book, and I don't even know who. And this was the first passage of the whole Bible that really grabbed me. And I, to this day, I'm not exactly sure why. But I got to chapter 3 of Colossians, and I read, starting in verse 1, If you've been raised with Christ, set, or seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, verse, or chapter, verse 2, set your minds on things above. And I had this idea of here I am in my little high school world, you know, and, you know, all this little life stuff around me. And this text was calling me to something greater. It was calling me to sort of have a new identity, sort of think about myself and my reality a little bit differently. And then this phrase that just I could not figure out, wrap my heads around, Christ who is your life. And I wrestled with that. How is Christ my life? And at the time, I don't know that he was much. And I didn't really get it, but I sensed there was something powerful in this passage, in the whole chapter, about human transformation. And that's what I long for. I, I sensed that there's a possibility of me becoming something new, me becoming something different, that somehow I could become more like the person that God had made me to be, that I sensed and knew there is a Rob inside of me that I'm not fully living into. Have you ever thought about that for you? The person you long to be, the person you wish you were, the, per- the person that, that you desire to be, and, and how might that transformation come about? Are you to kind of will yourself there and get real discipline and, and do spiritual workouts and figure out how to change? Or do you sit back passively and just hope that one day God's just going to zap you with some righteousness, some holiness, and transform you over time? Well, Colossians 3 talks about this. And the answer it gives is not either one of those extremes. So think back two weeks ago, if you were here, Lloyd taught on the beginning of chapter three and he played a clip from The Lion King, the animated version of The Lion King. And he wanted us to kind of grab onto this idea that, that oftentimes the, the deeper sin beneath and foundational to any other sin we commit is a failure to remember our identity. Remember who you are. 
Mufasa said to Simba. And then last week, Mike, continuing along in chapter three, he said this, sin no longer defines you. Now, it's still something that affects us for sure and something that can really kind of mess up our lives and is very harmful and destructive, but it no longer defines you. There's an old self you should take off because it's no longer who you are. And Mike, near the end of his message, uh, he had this line that I just thought, boy, this captures it really well. Become who you already are. That's a teaser for our text this morning because in our passage this morning, Paul shifts his focus from the old self, which is last week's text, to the new self. This is where we really start to see the full possibility of human potential, if you think about it this way. Paul is going to answer the question, how are we transformed? And the answer is, transformation happens as you live out the new identity that is given to you through Christ. You are no longer who you were. You are now something new. You're a new creation. So remember who you are, who you have become. Transformation happens as your behavior starts to align with your new identity. It happens inside out. I think in these short few verses this morning, Paul is describing nothing less than what it looks like to finally become a fully human being. God's intent for humanity, God's intent for each of us, all that he made us to be. So I want to read the passage again. You've already heard it once. It's short. I want you to hear it a second time, and then we're going to walk through it, and we're going to break it down and explain it. So verses 12 to 14 of chapter 3. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another and If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. If you've been with us in this series, you might have one of these books that we handed out at the beginning. All it is is a copy of the the scripture and the ESV translation and then blank pages you can take notes. We're going to be marking up the text a bit. We're going to be doing some notes this morning. If you'd like to join us with that, you're welcome to through a pen or pencil. The first thing is put a box around the word Lord because as we've been going, we've been marking every direct reference to Jesus. There's more than 60. There's only 95 verses in the letter. There's more than 60 direct references to Jesus. So we'll put it on the screen to show you. You can kind of just put a box around Lord. That one has a box around God too that shouldn't actually be there. So Lord is the direct reference to Jesus Christ, the second person of uh, the Trinity. Now, the very first words in our text in verse 12, put on, put on. It's a verb, a Greek verb in duo, which means to put a garment on, to put clothing on. And it's almost always used in the literal sense of clothing. It's talking about clothes. Like it's like... um, Uh, take your attire and and put on your attire. Let me read some other texts where this same verb is used. Matthew 6, 25, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, I tell you, therefore, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Same verb. So he's saying, don't worry about having to have clothes. God's going to provide for your needs. Don't worry about what you put on. Luke 15, 21, 22. This is one of the most famous parables in the Bible, the parable of the prodigal son. And this is what happens when the son finally comes back home. And the son said uh, to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him in duo. Put it on him, the robe and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. 
So there's a lot of other instances as well, but Paul is using this verb that means to put clothing on. He's using it metaphorically to create a word picture. So it's as if he's saying, remember what Jesus taught. Just like you don't need to worry about whether you'll have clothes to wear because God puts them on you, he's providing them for you. Just like the prodigal son didn't have to worry about his identity as a son of the father once the father put that robe on him and and put the signet ring on him and the, the, the shoes on his feet. In Christ, Paul is saying, God's given you a new set of clothes. He's given you a new set of spiritual garments. Think of it this way. Your new identity in Christ comes with a new wardrobe. Now, I want this to stick in your brain. So I'm going to do a little visual illustration up here. Some of you might have been thinking, if you've been at Fellowship for a while, it's like, Rob doesn't normally wear like casual clothes. And you're you're right, I don't. So I kind of brought my clothes with me this morning here. (laughs) I'm going to get dressed. Now, you know, nothing, uh, nothing crazy, so don't worry about it. But what I do want to take off something and put something else on. And in this case, I've got my shoes, okay? These are shoes that I would typically wear today. I didn't wear them because I wanted to give you this illustration. The whole idea of what Paul is saying in Colossians 3 is there are some things that you take off because they no longer match your identity. And there are some new things, some other things that you put on in order to express the reality of who you really are. Paul is saying you take off the old, you put on the new. And what's interesting is you put on different kinds of clothing. It's just, there's, there's something that shifts. Like I, I feel a little bit differently in the, in the jacket. I feel a little bit differently in the dress of your shoes. It's like, okay, now I can preach, you know? <laughs> Some of you have been holding this tension. It's just like, man, this church is going downhill, you know? <laughs> I knew we should have gotten out while we can. And now you relax, okay? You feel a little bit better. Your new identity in Christ comes with a new wardrobe. Transformation happens when you take off things that don't fit you any longer and you put on the clothes that do fit you. Now, here's where the the analogy breaks down, but this is one of the most beautiful things about the text. In reality, it's not that you have new clothes that have been tailored to fit you. It's that you have now been tailored. You have been changed in order to fit the spiritual clothes that God wants you to put on. Now, here's what Paul is saying about these spiritual clothes. These are now the clothing that fit you because who you are inside has been transformed. You've been changed internally through faith in Jesus Christ, he's telling these Christians. So put on these new set of clothes. You've got a new wardrobe. Why don't you wear it? Have you ever gotten used to seeing someone in, in a more casual environment? Maybe, you know, you work out with them or, you know, you see them at work and you, you guys have a, a dress down culture and then you go to a wedding or some event where suddenly they're all dressed up and it's like, hardly recognized you. You know, are you the same person? They're like a whole new person because the clothes match the occasion. And Paul's saying, you've been transformed. You've been recreated from the inside out. So dress appropriately. That's exactly the metaphor that he's creating. So let's walk through the items in our new wardrobe. Shall we just one by one, really briefly, this list that Paul encourages us, these garments that he's telling us to put on, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, verse 13, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord's forgiven you, so you also must forgive. If the list sounds familiar, it probably reminds you of the fruit of the Spirit. 
in the book of Galatians. Paul says, you know, he, he, here's the things that will grow out of you, the transformation. He's using another metaphor. You see the fruit metaphor, but here he's using the clothing metaphor. And the lists are very, very similar. Uh, I'll walk through each of them very briefly. Compassionate hearts is the idea of an emotional response to people in need. It's like you now have empathy. and You now kind of have a, a deep gut of compassion for other people. You feel for other people. You're moved by their struggle because you care. So like put on that garment. The next is kindness. Think about kindness in relation to a compassionate heart. Kindness is the outflow or the application of the compassion that you have internally. It's allowing your care and concern to flow out into your actions and your attitudes toward them. Humility. Boy, this is one that's not looked on very strongly in our culture. It wasn't looked on very well in Paul's culture either. Humility is the idea of putting others' interests above yours. By the way, sometimes we think humility means thinking less of yourself than you actually are. That's not the biblical definition of humility. But you might think of it this way. It means thinking of yourself less. Thinking of yourself less often. Thinking of others. Being mindful of the needs of others. Humility. Meekness is the next one. Uh, I don't love this word choice in the ESV because most of us, when we hear that in English in our vernacular, it's just like a softy, like no backbone. That's not the context in the Greek. Uh, other translations use the word gentleness, and I think that might be a little bit better. This word, whether you call it meek or gentle, it's the opposite of harsh. It's the opposite of sharp. So this is someone who's being less prickly. It also carries the idea of being able to disagree with somebody, but being able to do that in a way that's constructive, not destructive. Being able to engage in a conversation, not just, you know, say, well, you know, you do whatever you want, you know, because I'm meek. Oh, no, no. It's to engage and enter in, but do it in a way with gentleness that's constructive rather than destructive. That's meekness. Patience, slow to become angry slow to want to exact revenge. You know, we live in a culture, it's like, man, if you do this to me, I'm gonna do that to you. And someone who's patient um, would, would be slow to go down that path. Uh, if you read the Greek literally, it literally reads large-hearted. It's translated patient, but I love that, that image of someone with a big heart that's able to absorb a lot of harm because they are patient, so to speak. Bearing with one another. The idea of coming alongside each other and carrying each other's burdens. Guys, life is hard, is it not? I stood right up here on this stage, oh, I guess it was about a week and a half ago, and, and did a funeral uh, for Cindy Hamilton, who attends our Franklin campus. Um, died in her mid-40s through a long struggle with cancer. Her husband, Ken, and two young children are now figuring out what life is like after mom. And what I told that congregation was, I said, we need to gather around this family and bear the burden with one another because we are a body, body of Christ. This is the kind of thing that Paul is talking about, bearing with one another. Uh, Genesis 2.18, when God says it's not good for the man to be alone, that's the first time in all of scripture when God says something's not good. And notice it's isolation that he's calling out is not good. He's not saying it's not good for someone to be single. Okay, that's not scriptural. What he's saying is it's not good for someone to be isolated. That's the idea. We need human community. 
going on, forgiving each other. Paul here is acknowledging, look, community's messy. Relationships are hard. Human beings are a little bit like porcupines in the cold where, you know, we're shivering and we huddle up to next to each other to stay warm because we know we need one another. But then the closer we get to each other to try to huddle up and stay warm, the more we poke, the more we wound. And Paul is acknowledging this and he's saying, listen, when you wound one another, which you will do, be quick to forgive. And what's the motivation behind that? Because you've been forgiven. This is what he says, you know, as the Lord has forgiven you. Who are we who have been forgiven so much to withhold forgiveness from other people? And this is the most obvious one, but all of these actually have the same idea of because what you've received from Christ, you can now give to other people. Because you've received forgiveness, you can now forgive. Because Jesus was humble and had you in mind, you can be humble and have them in mind. Because Jesus was kind, you can be kind. Because Jesus has borne with you in all of your stuff and your struggle, you can bear with one another. So you see, it's Christ that fuels all of this. And that flows right into verse 14, which is the crowning garment. And above all these put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Paul, in his mind, very likely had on the belt, had in mind the belt or the sash because, you know, think about the robes that they would wear back then. You, you know, you had to have something to hold it together. And so that, that belt or that sash that you would tie around was what held everything else together in perfect harmony, you know, wholeness, completion is the idea. Uh, it's interesting that he uses the phrase above all else. He says, above all else, above all, sorry, above all these, above all these. Because the only other thing that Paul has said is above all in this letter is Christ. And he keeps saying that Christ is all and in all. Christ is above all. Christ is above all. Jesus is above all things. And then he gets here. He says, above all these put on love. His word choice is very, very deliberate. Think of it this way. According to 1 John 4, 8, God is love. We also know that Jesus is God in the flesh, God incarnate. So what that means is Jesus is the physical embodiment of love. You want to know what love looks like? You look at Jesus. God is love. Jesus is God incarnate. He's the physical embodiment of love in all its fullness, all its richness, all its depth. So it's no surprise you get to the list of all the garments and Paul brings your attention back to Christ. He says, above all these, your, your mind's going above all, okay? And he says, put on love. Jesus is love embodied. So to put on all these different garments that have been listed out, culminating in love, is to put on Jesus Christ. Christ's clothing has now become our clothing. So going back to my analogy here, my, my illustration, you know, now in real life, these are my clothes. But what Paul is saying in this text is, you've now been fit to wear the clothes of Jesus. Put them on. Put them on. Every single one of these individual garments Paul lists points to Christ. When we put his clothes on, we start to look like him. We start to act like him. 
we start to have his scent about us. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 talks about us carrying the aroma of Christ. I think the aroma is found in the clothing. Love, patience, bearing with, humility. <laughs> Jesus told his disciples on his last night with them, he, he said, listen, um, here's how people will know that you belong to me. Through your love. So that, that's, that's what's going to indicate. That's the garment that you're going to wear that people are going to say, oh, they're one of Jesus. When we choose to follow Jesus, we're choosing the path of radical love. That's what Jesus' entire life was. See, that's how you're going to know you're my disciples, because of your love. There's so many different contexts that we could apply that one point right there. But let me just reinforce one. You know, Carl mentioned this event that we're going to do on, on March 10th. I'm not going to spend a real long time on this. But we're bringing in Dr. Preston Sprinkle from the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender to do a workshop. Carl mentioned, why are we doing it? Like, do you think we like, you know, the, the emails, you know, like people are like, well, well, what is this? What is this? You, you get criticized on both sides. Anytime you're going to step into an issue like this, why, why are we doing this? Listen, one of the reasons we're hosting this event is to help us learn how to better embody the verse that I just read. Above all these, put on love. Put on love. We want to become better expressions of Christ's love in our cultural moment. In our cultural context. Now, now listen, hear, hear me on this. I'm convinced that churches that are going to have cultural influence over the next couple of decades are not the churches that change their theology based on the cultural moment that we're in. And we're not doing that. And we're not going to do that. But nor are they the churches that are shrinking back and failing to engage the conversation and failing to equip their body on how to have conversations with people whom we're called to love about these issues. The churches that will actually be salt and light in the coming decades are the ones that will continue to hold firmly to their faith in the truth and authority of God's word and at the same time learn how to better embody the love of Christ for all people. That's why we're choosing to engage it this way. By equipping all of us, first and foremost, on what Scripture says about the issues, and at the same time asking the question, how do we love well? How do we love well? And we want to bring in the best resources that we know of, and certainly Dr. Preston Sprinkle, we believe, is one of those. And I should mention, we checked the registration, like the room's about half full right now. It's open to the community, and so we don't want you to miss this. So if you've got the time free in your calendar, register. Be there before it fills up, because it will fill up. All right, enough on that, but I wanted to connect this to some of the why we're doing this. Here's what I want to do next. We've walked through all the pieces of the wardrobe, culminating in, in love. You know, above all these, put on love. We still really haven't gotten to the question about how this actually happens. How does transformation happen? How will we begin to put on the new wardrobe, the new clothing that is ours, the clothing of Christ that we can now wear? There's a short phrase at the beginning of verse 12 that's a key to the whole thing. And I deliberately ran past it because I wanted to come back and unpack it. Paul says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Do you see what he did? It's like before he got to the like, put on this, put on that, put on the other, he says, remember who you are. 
For some of us, the struggle is not as much remembering who we are as believing who we are. So you've, there's something here you've got to believe. And it's, it's so close to you, it's your whole identity. And if you're not focused on it, you have no hope of your external life reflecting these garments of Christ. You are God's chosen ones, Paul is reminding us. You are holy. You are beloved. Chosen means you're, you are selected. That means you're wanted and desired by God. Holy doesn't mean you're perfect. Not in your current state. Oh, oh no, none of us are. But it means we've been set apart. It means you've been sort of set aside for something special, something sacred. That, that's exactly what that word means. Beloved it's kind of a little bit of an older English word, beloved. It just means you're loved. You're dearly loved, as the NIV translates it. Uh, New Living Translation puts all of it together and says, since God chose you to be holy, to be the holy people he loves. God chose you to be the holy people he loves. You are chosen. You are set apart. You are dearly loved. If you want to experience transformation, it's massively important that you believe that. I think relatively few of us in the room really believe that. You're chosen. You're holy. You're dearly loved. How you understand your identity profoundly shapes the way you live. And this is the key to the whole chapter. This is what I did not get when I was in high school. Because I read this text and I was like, okay, there's something about the old self, new self. And then I got to the put on part, put on this, put on that. And I was like, all right, I got to work hard to be humble. I got to work hard to be gentle. I got to work hard to be kind, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I did not focus as much on my identity. I kind of skipped over those words, you are chosen, you are holy, you are loved, therefore. The easiest way to understand, I think, this concept is to illustrate it. In fact, what I want to do now is bring out this whiteboard so that I can kind of illustrate the, the whole chapter and what I think Paul's getting after in the whole chapter. Now, if the technology works, this should go on the screen as well. So if you can't quite see it, you should be able to follow along with the screen. So in chapter three, Paul talks about the old self and the new self. Let's start with the old self. He describes the old self in the text that Mike Vogt preached last week, chapter three, verses five through 11. In the middle of that old self, there is an old identity. That old identity, and we're talking here about who you are in Adam, so to speak. Just your, your, your humanness, okay? Your fallen sinful nature humanness. Old identity is characterized by this. You're insecure, inadequate, and fearful. Insecure, inadequate, and fearful. Think for just a minute about the sin in Genesis chapter three in the Garden of Eden. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they immediately felt the effects of sin. Insecurity, inadequacy, and fear. So what do they do? They clothe themselves. They, they hide in the bushes, literally. They, they, get, they say to God, well, we heard you walking and we were afraid. Where did fear come from? Where did insecurity come from? Where did inadequacy come from? You see, this is an old identity that is in each of us. I'm gonna kind of represent it in the heart because as we talk about here at Fellowship, the heart is kind of your core internal inside. And the identity of the old self, the old heart, or the, the, the old inner self, so to speak, is insecure, inadequate, and fearful. From that internal identity, 
that gives birth to all kinds of external behaviors. So let me list some of them. I won't go through all of them that Mike talked about last week in verses 5 through 11. That should be 5 through 11 right there. Now I've got a division sign. Oh, well. Immorality, impurity. I won't list them all, but I want to grab on to a few of them. Idolatry, which by the way, is kind of like the root behind all of this stuff, worshiping things that are not gods, not God, singular. Anger, slander. Slander is what happens when our internal selves um, come out through our words and wound other people. And then at the very top here, I'm going to write lies. You know, he says, do not lie to each other. It's also, you know, lies and idolatry are kind of the, the, the top and the bottom end here of these things. Here's the idea. Your old self, what you believe about yourself, your inner identity rooted back in the fall is going to work itself out in some external choices and external behaviors. Now, the good news is there's also for all of us in Christ who've put our faith in Christ, a new self that we can put on. That new self, which is talked about here in our passage this morning, chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, also has an identity. It's a new identity. And Paul starts this text off right away by naming it for us. He says, you are chosen. You are holy. These are powerful words of identity that's being spoken over us. You are loved. You are beloved. Again, once this forms your internal inner identity, all kinds of things, new things begin to be birthed from that. So let me list the words that we've already gone through. Compassion flows out of this new identity. Kindness flows out of this new identity. These are, these are items that we can put on now that represent the truth of who we are internally. Humility flows out of this new identity. Patience. And then, of course, bearing with one another and forgiving. And then, above all of these, put on love. Now, let's just look at this for a minute. I want to compare and contrast these two. They are worlds apart. Imagine two cities near one another, the same population size, the same demographic base, the same access to resources and wealth, but imagine that everybody in one city lives this way. <laughs> Immoral, impure, idolatry, anger, slander, lying to one another. And imagine everybody in the other city lives this way, compassionate, kindness, humility, patience. Think about what incredibly different it would be, how, how different life would be in those two cities. In one, attitudes and behaviors that inevitably cause fragmentation. Fragmentation of the community and fragmentation in inside individuals within the community. In the other, a way of life that brings wholeness, unity, integration to individuals and to the community. In other words, genuine human existence in this city, on my right, your left, would be utterly destroyed, but genuine human existence would flourish in the second. On the one side, fragmented, disintegrated individuals and communities. On the other, flourishing, whole, unity, 
flourishing life. Now, what could create transformation? This is what we're really getting after, right? How in the world could a person or a group of people be transformed? It cannot just focus on controlling the external behavior. That's what law does. That's what government does. That's what the police force does. And it does not change the heart. In order to change a culture, a society, a person, at the deepest level, the identity must be changed. There has to be a shift in the internal level. That's why Jesus, when he came in and talking to the Pharisees that looked good on the outside but were a wreck on the inside, he said, you're paying attention to the wrong things. Guys, this, this is where the gospel comes in. This is where the cross comes in. Because just think about it this way. The gospel, the first thing it does it reshapes your identity. So oftentimes people think, oh, I believe in the gospel. That means in the future, I'm gonna be in heaven. Absolutely true. But the first thing the gospel does is it gives you a new identity. It reshapes your identity. It transforms you from a person who is insecure, inadequate, and fearful to a person who now is chosen, holy, and beloved. And that identity shift, men and women, is everything. Because, I want you to really think about this and kind of grab onto it. Just as sin is birthed from the inside out, righteousness is also birthed from the inside out, you see. The more you believe what is true about you because of Jesus, the more your external life will start to reflect your true identity, the more you will be putting on the clothes that you now realize are yours to wear. Some of you are thinking, why does it matter so much what God thinks of me? You know, isn't it more pertinent what other people think of me? And listen, who has the right to name you except your creator? Who has the right to declare what is true about you except the one who made you? and knows you. And we keep telling you week after week, the gospel and your faith in Christ, his life, his death, resurrection, that means that you're a new person. What does that mean? Well, you're like, well, my external behavior hasn't caught up to that internal reality. Yes, that's largely true, but that does not mean you are not chosen. You are. You are wholly set apart, and you are beloved. If you could just believe that you're loved by God, how much would that change you? You know, so much of the reason that we turn to immorality and impurity and, and all these things on this side is because we're longing for something. We're, we're deep down, we feel inadequate. We, we feel insecure, we're, we're afraid. And so we, we, we grab onto what we can grab onto, oftentimes wounding other people in the process. The power of the gospel is that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus on your behalf, you are chosen, you are holy, you are dearly loved. And so just to complete this, what I'm going to call this transformation, it's gospel transformation. This is how you change. It is not religion that will change you. That's what Paul, by the way, he debunked that in chapter two. Gospel transformation. And that is expressed in verses one to four. If then you've been raised with Christ, 
Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your minds on things above, not on the things that are on the earth, because you died and your life is hidden with Christ. So when Christ, who is your life, appears, okay? And don't just think about his second coming. That definitely implied there, but there's more. But when you start to put on his clothing, he begins to appear in you. You see, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also are appearing with him. And it's glorious. This is why each week we remind you the truth of the good news of Jesus. We do that through song. We do that through teaching God's word. We do it through the table. And so I want to ask the ushers to go ahead and get ready and and go ahead and begin passing out the elements of our table. And I've got a few more things to say as they do, as they do. So don't try not to lose your focus because I I believe this is really going to matter to to bring all this together this morning. Anyone who's put your faith in the life of Jesus Christ is welcome at this table. You don't have to belong to this church. You don't have to be a religious, you know, type person. The question is, have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? In other words, do you believe that you can't will yourself to change behavior or earn life, eternal or otherwise. You're gonna trust the work that was done through the life that Christ lived that you couldn't live, through the death that he died that you deserve. You're putting your faith in those things and his resurrection so that you are now a new person. If you believe you are chosen and you are holy and you are loved by God because of Christ, you're welcome at this table. That means you are part of the body of Christ. As the ushers are passing out the elements, we're going to come to the table a little bit differently this morning. And, and here's why we're going to do it a little bit differently. I want to tell you this even before I tell you how we're going to do it. Nothing on the list, the, the wardrobe list, the, the list of garments that we work through today, nothing on this list is meant to be lived out alone. In fact, none of those garments can really even be put on apart from community. Uh, Jesus came to save not just individuals, but to actually form a people, a body, body of Christ. And so as we thought and prayed about this text and this service going back weeks ago, it felt appropriate to us to embody this text as a body, as a community. And so here's what we're going to do. Um, in a few moments, after you've taken the bread and cup, if, if you are this morning, uh, you're going to hold that in your hands. And then in a few minutes, I'm going to release you to get up and and group up. So you can stand up or you can continue sitting and turn around if you'd like. But find three or four or five other people. So just small groups. Could be people you came with or maybe even better, people that you've just met or you're just meeting. Maybe someone that you uh, shook a hand with during that meet and greet earlier. And then you should have received when you came in. Everyone should have gotten a worship program. On the back of this today, there's just a little script a way that you're gonna walk through the table together as a small group, as a, little, as a group of four or five or six in this room. So one person can volunteer, it can be anybody in your group can volunteer to do this, and you'll literally just read that first paragraph and then pause for each member to pray, read the second paragraph, pause for each member to pray, read the third paragraph, and then you'll see it'll prompt you to take the bread and take the cup 
together. Now, let me say this. Some of you right now are in this room and, and, and you, you're not a believer of Jesus and, and you're not taking communion with us. And let me just say, I'm so glad you're here. And as we talked about this element, we knew, you know what, the biggest risk is that people in the room that aren't participating, that aren't yet believing in Jesus Christ, that aren't taking communion with us, would feel isolated, would feel alone, would feel left out. And as we talked about that, we said, well, how are we gonna handle that? And, and honestly, guys, I just want you to just lovingly live into this tension as a body. There's some of you in the room that are not taking communion. We don't want you to feel any sense of isolation you are welcome to be a part of a group. If you'd like to be, we would love for you to be a part. And you can just walk through the prayers with us. You don't have to take communion. Nobody's gonna judge you. Nobody's gonna look at you. Let me give you a couple other options. If you'd like to just stay in your seat and not be a part of a group, feel free to. We love you being here. You're a part of this with us this morning and we want you to feel that. Another option, if you wanna come forward and pray with someone down here, we'd welcome to pray. Or if you just feel like you need to excuse yourself and leave, again, we want you to be able to feel like you're able to choose to be a part of this or not this morning. But for those of us that are taking communion, we don't do it alone. We lean into the community that is ours because of Jesus Christ. So I'll give you a few minutes and then after all the groups have taken communion together a few minutes from now, I'll bring us back together and we'll recite our Colossians Creed to conclude our service this morning. So go ahead, stand up, find four, five, or six people and engage this together as a community.
as you're wrapping up, um, I'm going to dismiss you. So why don't you go ahead and stand again for the final time. And uh, we're going to, in a moment, we're going to say our Colossians Creed together as a declaration of our faith. Um, And then after that, you'll be dismissed. And let me just say, if you'd like to pray with someone this morning about anything at all that you're carrying, we are here to bear the burden with you. I'll be down front. There's others that are down front already that would love to pray with you. Uh, Let's, as a body, say these things, what we believe, so that we can root our identities in the truth of Jesus Christ. The words will be on the screen. We believe he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Because we believe all of that is true, we can go in peace and help others find peace. Have a good week.